The views presented in this program are not meant to express the specific views of the Lafayette Bible Fellowship. You are listening to the Vigilance Radio Network. You are listening to Truth Time with Pastor Monty. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. I do have a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. You want answers? You can't handle the truth! problem is having the right worldview and acting upon it. The worldview that gives men and women the truth of what is. Welcome to Truth Time with Pastor Monty, a show about God's truth in today's society from a multi-generational pastoral perspective. The Truth Time with Pastor Monty broadcast is a part of Aletheia Bible Fellowship's Project Vigilance, a web portal that provides internet Christians out there with helpful content and insights. We're produced by ABF's Vigilance Radio Network. If you're interested in this ministry or our other shows, you can check us out at abfpdx.org where you can access more resources, donate, and learn more about us. At the top of the show today, let's remember to help us spread this content by liking, sharing, and subscribing to this episode. And if you haven't yet, go ahead and join our Facebook group where you can stay up to date on this and all our programming. You can find it at vrn.abf on Facebook. Now that all that's said, I'm Pastor Josh, your engineer and senior pastor over at ABF, and this is Pastor Monty. Good morning, this is Truth Time, and I am Pastor Monty, and we are going to pick up where we left off. Now remember that what we've been dealing with is we're alternating between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the last time we were together, we were in the Old Testament, so that means that this morning we're going to be in Second Thessalonians uh, on the Christ Factor. As a matter of practicality, we're you know we're just gonna what we're gonna have to do as we alternate back and forth is just give a little bit of a a summary introduction to what we had covered uh, in our last broadcast or the actually the two broadcasts ago uh, in order to catch people up as to where we're at. We are in the book of First Thessalonians, and um, the first several chapters of First Thessalonians are basically the Apostle Paul talking about his desire uh, to uh, be with the church there and his desire to uh, communicate with them and send Timothy to them. And so he's talking about that. And then he gets starts to get into the meat of the, the discussion as he begins to wind down this letter that he's sending. You might remember that, that uh, the Apostle Paul is basically sending letters to the churches that he has interaction with. And so just like, you know, you and I would send a letter today, well, okay, for many of you it would be an email. Some of you may not even know what a, a letter is like. But but basically writing everything down and, and putting a stamp on it and dropping it in the mail, what they used to do in... in uh, in Paul's day, is that he would write at length his heartfelt um, convictions and concerns about 
where these various groups were at, and then he would give the letter to one of his disciples or one of his acquaintances to carry it to the church that he was trying to reach out to. Um, and that's how the letters were, were transmitted. And most of these letters, by the way, once they got to where they were headed, then oftentimes, uh, as they were directed to the various churches, they would share these letters with the other churches in order to be encouraged by the content therein. And so that's kind of a summary of where, of where that's at. And we left off uh, addressing uh, the material in chapter 4. And so let me just uh, reread a portion of chapter 4 for your, your uh, memory uh, to, be, uh, to be peaked. And uh, I'm going to start out uh, basically with verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. So it is God's will that you should that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, just like the heathen uh, who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should uh, wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish him for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, and give, uh, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So a couple of things are, are noted here, and... and um, I think that, that it's helpful for us to keep in mind the atmosphere that we're, uh, that we're talking about. In, in, in the time period that we're dealing with here, it was not uncommon for uh, worship of the heathen gods which surrounded the church uh, to include uh, various sexual practices. And so those people who had accepted Christ and were coming into the church had built into their thinking that uh, the exhibit of their sexuality and various sexual practices of worship was uh, okay. And so the Apostle Paul is now seeking to define for them that as a church, as a believer, this is unacceptable. And that even in the most basic of our life functions, in this case, understanding our sexuality, that that is to be under control and that we are no longer to act as the heathens do. And so he, he reminds them that God calls us to be sanctified, meaning to be set apart. So two theological terms that you uh, would hear sometimes uh, joined together, um, but uh, two theological terms which are uh, the Apostle Paul loves to use and clarifies them is uh, the idea of justification and sanctification. So justification is an event. Justification takes place when you as an individual uh, accept the work of Jesus Christ 
on the cross of Calvary and his shed blood covers your sin so that you are able to enter back into the presence of God as one who has been cleaned by the blood of Christ and set apart uh, as one who is now holy, that's justification. The only act that, the only thing that, part that you have in justification is that you have accepted the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So you don't have to do anything else because it's not your work that brings about justification. It's the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. His shed blood covers the believer, and because his shed blood covers us, we are justified before the seat of an almighty righteous God. That's justification. Sanctification is a little bit different. Um, did you want to add anything before we move on, Josh? Uh, no. Not not really, not at this point. I, I am posting uh, some links, though, in the comment section so people can look at that a okay. little more. Yeah. So sanctification is the process whereby we are becoming, this is the way that I tend to phrase it for understanding purposes, we are becoming what we already are. First Peter uh, Peter's, uh, in First Peter, uh, we are told, be holy for, you know, we, we, are, we are to be holy. Because Christ is holy. <coughs> Excuse me. We are to be holy. A righteous people set apart. So this process that we go through uh, is learning how it is that we are to live for Christ. That is the, the process of sanctification. So when you become a believer and you are now a disciple of Christ, there are a couple of things that happen. And we've talked about that before. We've talked about the, the process that you need to go through, the process of recognition, the process of repentance, the process of baptism, the process of having a renewing of your mind. Uh, the process of setting apart in your thinking that you are now a disciple of Christ and the world is the the self is is dead and so you are dead to yourself you are dead to the world and you are alive to Christ uh, and so you are now living as one who is set apart but some believers have the mistaken idea that um, it's it's kind of like flipping a light switch that that the the process of, of knowing how to live for God is uh, is something that just happens automatically and now you know when something is right and something is not and you know that you're supposed to live in such a way and and uh, I'm just here to tell you my experience is uh, that's that's not true. Well, it can be true, but it's well, a special gift when it when and, it is true. And normally it's 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 true to the extent that if you have a particular sin area that you're plagued right. with and you pray that God would take that away, sometimes that will happen. Right. Sometimes God will intervene miraculously 
and because of your repentance, remove that from you. But my experience is, is that most of the time, we as individuals need to submit that to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to guidance, guide us in that process of changing how we live and how we think and what we do so that we align ourselves with the with the Christ and realign ourselves with a, a holy life rather than align ourselves with uh, our past life. Yeah, there's. it's really important to know the difference between justification and sanctification for that reason yes. in particular. And I think you got a lot of believers who don't understand that them not not fully coming into the the fullness of their Christian um, walk means that they're somehow not justified. The truth is is that justification is immediate and sanctification is a process. Yes, it's a it's a lifelong process. Right, right. The other thing that's really important about both is that neither of them are on our own merits. And a lot of people a lot of people get hung up on the idea that they now that they've been saved somehow that means that they like they understand that they are justified by faith right but then they think that somehow because they're saved they have some sort of like supernatural um reinstitution of their own ability to achieve righteousness and the truth is is that there's a category error there in terms of understanding the life that we live. It's not like God frees you so that you can become independent of God again. Right. That's not how that works. Yeah. When, when God frees you, it's specifically to be dependent upon God. Um, and so just because you've been saved doesn't mean that now you're uh, no longer in need of God and you can do everything by your own righteousness. It's not how that works. You Now that you understand your need of God, that's when you lean on him more. And leaning on him more means allowing yourself to be opened up to the sanctification process. Right. And and so for so from a practical standpoint, for believers who are young, that is that they come to a desire to follow Christ and they become disciples of Christ when they are chronologically young, then there is less not how I'm going to put this in such a way that what, what I'm going to attempt to be delicate. I'm going to yeah I'm going to attempt to be delicate. There, it, there is there is less for them to overcome in life normally because experientially they have less that they have done. And sure. so and so if you. If you've maybe statistically, yeah. Well, if you've lived a life of lasciviousness through your teenage years and into your early twenties, and you, you know, it's, it was common for you to hang with your beds and smoke and drink and and go out and have sex and carry on and do all those types of things, yeah. like the world would have you to do. You got a lot of issues you got to overcome. Yeah. If you're a young person that comes to Christ when you're you know, um, in preteens or like that, like I came to Christ when I was 12. So even though I grew up in a, uh, 
highly dysfunctional family, and both of my parents drank and swore like sailors and smoked and all that type of stuff. Um, I didn't have to deal with overcoming those things because they weren't ingrained into my life. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's got everybody's got some difficulties in regard to that. I, I mean, you look at the physiology and the and then um, yeah, you look at the physiology of people and how they develop, and there's a lot of development that's taking place in a younger person's life. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so as much as, as much as they may not have a lot of, uh, let's say sin issues that have had time to blossom to their fullest, they also are not as clear minded either. Well, they um, still have to make the choices along the way to protect themselves from not getting into things. Yeah. Well, the, so, the other, the other thing is, you know, they also, uh, to what you were saying earlier, they also have, um, more energy toward that end. But in the same vein, the like older people, when they come to Christ, they also have to undo a lot of the stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. there's, there's a lot of, but they also have the, they, ha, they have the benefit of hindsight also. They have the benefit of hindsight and they, um, but, but they have behaviors that have been become ingrained that need to be, um, need to be changed. Sure, and and that's that can be for many a very difficult process. And as as uh, you know, Josh and I, we were talking about the the um, for some people that's a, a miraculous issue, right? For most people, the way that 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 God helps us to overcome those things is within the body of Christ. He brings people into our lives that come alongside us and help us as we are committed to living a holy life to overcome those issues. So yeah. that in turn, as we mature in Christ, we will have the same opportunity. Yeah, the scripture is really clear that maturation is a joint operation. Yes. You know, and I think that people don't really understand that. God wants you to go through that process because it makes you better. So that's the first thing. We're finite beings, we experience things moment to moment, and in order for us to grow and carry it on to the next moment, carry that growth on to the next moment, not just sort of be free-floating in the ether of time, I know I'm being hyper-philosophical here, but um, we need to experience things beyond a singular moment. So just flipping that light switch in, on, for most people, doesn't necessarily equate growth in the next moment. It just means in that moment, things are good. Right. But then on top of it, we are meant to be communal in the way that we experience things. We're relational. God is a relational God. He's relational into himself. We are his body and we are relational unto ourselves. And therefore, as his body, we're supposed to experience those things with each other. And our experience is what informs other people. So as much as, and this is, this is a true thing, you know, as much as we may want to leave this earth you know, as much as we may want to die on our own, I think Paul even says this, as much as we may want to die on our own, for the benefit of others, we should be willing to experience the suffering and the trauma and all of these things for our own personal growth, the anguish um, of being a Christian. And that includes all of it. That's not just physical traumas, but that's also the emotionality, the full breath of emotionality yeah, in yeah. regard to the stress 
of being perfected by God. And we see that in Paul's writings when he talks about the thorn in his flesh, for instance. Right, right. You know, it's, it, he, he talks about it uh, that way so that we can grow from it. Yeah, yeah. So evidently, the reason why this is coming up in Thessalonians, the issue of, uh, of developing in their thinking in regard to sexuality, is because it was a problem. Yeah. There, Lucy, Lucy Brown has a comment. She says, the surrender to God's will is easier for those who agree to his sanctification process. Yes, absolutely. You are correct. And that includes understanding that it takes time. Being willing for it to take time and, and being wanting for it to take well, time. Well, and I think that, that, that one of the problems that we have in our society today is that we, <laughs> we are an instantaneous society. We, you know, we want it quickly. We want it now, and and uh, with technology surrounding young people today, right? Um, you know, you can have it instantly, and you can have it your way. And many of the things that we're talking about—the developing of character, the maturation process—those are things that take time. Sometimes, sometimes years. Yeah. In order to in order to develop and overcome and have an appropriate perspective, and so it's difficult for many young people today to understand that it's not it's not instantaneous, and it is something that's going to take time, and and so here, um, these people are coming out of a heathen background. They're coming out of a background where their sexuality was a part of their expression of religiosity. And now they're coming into the church, and they're wanting to carry over that those uh, same practices within the church. Well, they just don't know any better. Yeah, and that's my point. And the Apostle Paul is saying, <laughs> whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he says, you know, that's not how it's supposed to be done. Right. And then he talks to them about understanding that, you know, uh, when it comes to sexual expression within the body of Christ, you know, God wants you to gain control over that area of your life. And, and that's, and that's ex specifically what he says. Is he says that, you know, um, you're not to have passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God uh, in this matter. Um, and then he says something interesting. He said, nobody should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Uh, in regard to this. And so, you know, uh, we're to understand that we're to have control over our body uh, in a way that is holy and honorable and act not like the heathens do. And then he adds this caveat about not, uh, you know, not taking advantage of uh, our brothers, uh, I would dare say likely sisters as well, um, because of the fact that in this area, uh, I would say still today in the church, is one of the most difficult areas for pastors to deal with, uh, presenting, it shouldn't be, but it is, presenting a, a biblical understanding of sexuality and sexual expression within the body of Christ in a holy and appropriate manner. Yeah. And I've, uh, you know, my own experiences. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen everything from it is, uh, it is uh, strictly taboo 
and you are not to have any interaction with the uh, opposite sex and or um, making up myths uh, that for people to believe in about uh, issues like uh, conception sure and and uh, what's going to happen and all those things and and or not being willing to talk about it at all so uh, where where do you fall like where do you fall on the spectrum or yeah how would you describe the spectrum of conversation of sexuality within the church like what's the healthy spectrum of conversation well a healthy spectrum of of uh of this discussion, we're not going to do it here now, but but it's something we can talk about in the future. We'll have a special, uh, yeah, yeah, truth no. time on sex. Yeah, sex and truth time. Uh, <laughs> um, where I fall is is that when we look at how God created us, and we understand how God created us, it's impossible not to address the issue of human sexuality and what God's designed for. Uh, expression of our sexuality is inside of uh, his word. So what is his word revealed about sex and what instances do we see it being a positive and a negative right. inside of scripture and what can we glean from that to understand how we are to conduct ourselves uh, with one another in the body of Christ. And uh, so that's, and I believe that we need to have an open, honest uh, discussion um, about that so that the body, the church might be well informed in regard to this area. And there might not be any of these weird caveats that, uh, as I said, I've experienced over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the church needs to be open about sex. I think the church needs to be sacred about sex. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, <laughs> but there's, I got to tell you, my experience is, is a real hang-up. I mean, my, when I was pastoring and uh, I, you know, I, would, uh, I would preach from the Word, you know, if, if God's Word talks about it, I'm going to preach about it. Yeah. And, and if it's a complicated issue or, or the author that I'm exegeting Scripture from uh, is taking his time about dealing with it, it may take me three or four Sundays sure. in order to address fully what what uh, is being shared from God's Word. And I've had people literally tell to me, what's, what's your problem, Pastor? Why are you always talking about sex? Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm, I'm not always talking about sex. It happens to be that it's being addressed from Scripture. Well, I mean, let's be clear. Sex is... It- I mean, not only is it it's a God institution, but it is a primal focus of Scripture. Absolutely. And it's a primal focus of mankind in general. That's what I mean. We are surrounded we by... We are made as sexual beings. Sex is, is all throughout the Bible. God uses sex even to describe his covenantal relationship Sex is the physical outworking of the covenantal relationship. Yes. God even uses sexual themes and uh, terminology to describe his covenantal relationship with man and him. Think yes. about circumcision. What are we talking about? Oh, We're talking talk about, about penises, yeah. Yeah. right? 
when Paul, even Paul makes, he makes a, what would be considered a lewd remark. He makes a sex joke when he makes a conversation. What's the conversation? It's about circumcision and being enslaved to the law. And Paul says, uh, when people are talking about how new believers need to be circumcised, and Paul says, I would rather that you be cut off. That's a, that's a penis joke. That's a penis joke. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a hilarious one too. Yeah. So it, it's it's a it's a primal issue, and then the, so the the apostle Paul brings it up, and then he says to the and but then he reminds the church at Thessalonica that they have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So he says to them, "Hey, you're not to act like you did when you were a heathen. You're to you to uh, understand your sexuality and practice it in an honorable fashion because you are." members of the body of Christ now, living to glorify God through every aspect of how you live, and you have the Holy Spirit that is now given to you for you to be able to accomplish this. You're not accomplishing it on your own. I think that the fact that we have taken sex and made it taboo, see, Scripture addresses sex directly, confidently, boldly, and and directively, right? Yes. It gives us directions in which to follow, um, but it's not necessarily. It's not even hyper prescriptive, which is nice. There's right. freedom within it in the way yeah. that it does things. That being said, the fact that we have been unwilling to address it is a symbol. Well, it's not a symbol. It has created um, a blind spot. Oh, definitely. And our definitely. culture is obsessed with sex. Yeah. And our culture. Our culture has an unhealthy fixation on sex, and that particular issue has pervaded into into everything. Yeah, you know, it, it extends like the issue of abortion, which you think on the surface has nothing to do with sex. People make it about murder. Well, it has everything to do with. Sex. But obviously, we're dealing with the result of yes. of sex, yeah. right? And that is never brought up in the divorce right. discussion, right? And transgenderism and identity and all of these various issues um, uh, are really connected to our understand our proper understanding of sex. But people have not allowed the Bible to speak where it speaks, right? You know, and instead they've tried to keep it quiet or make it into some sort of dirty issue when it's not dirty. It's it's something that's sacred. Yeah. And and so we're going to, you know, we, as Josh indicated, we can, we can have, if there's interest, an open discussion uh, on this program about sexuality further than what we've already described. But we're going to close uh, our time today in The Christ Factor uh, with... Uh, leaving us uh, to take up the uh, at verse 9 uh, when we come back to First uh, Thessalonians. Now we want to jump into what's up with that. Well, just a couple, a couple of interesting things out there. Um, there are really things of note that uh, as you are going about life that you need to pay attention to certain things. So let's start out with, uh, there's a guy in Florida that is excited about going fishing. It's, all, and, it's always animals with you. And he, but well, this is not an animal. Okay, he, okay. He pulls up to the gas station 
and uh, you know he's going to get gas for his rig and what have you. Yeah. So he pulls up to the gas station, and he pulls the nozzle out, and he's so excited to get going that he sticks the nozzle in the wrong hole. What other hole would it go into? Well, uh, on the boat. Oh, it's a boat. It's okay. a boat, so he's got you know a so, gas tank on the boat for. And then his, there's another tank. What does it do? Well, he's, he's exhaust or something. No, he put it in the the fishing pole holder. And and pumped thirty gallons of gasoline oh into his boat before he realized his mistake. <laughs> wow! So hazmat. Had to be called and pump all that gas out of his boat. Yeah, is his boat ruined? No, it, you know, they got it out of there. It didn't destroy it. But uh, So here's the thing. When you pull up, <laughs> so here's my take on this. When you pull up to a, uh, a gas station, uh, first of all, if you're driving a, a, um, a gas vehicle, then only put gas in your gas vehicle. If you're driving a diesel vehicle, only put diesel in your vehicle. Now, you'll normally know the difference between diesel and gas because diesel is green. The, the handle is green. Yeah. Which means it's for diesel. And when you stick that hose in the opening... That it, that it goes, when you stick your nozzle into the opening that it goes into, for heaven's sakes, look that you have it going into the tank. Yeah. That it's supposed to be. Uh, and, I mean, people do these things. It's sad, but they do. That's crazy. They say, they described it as a level three hazmat. Oh, yeah. No, this is not a lightweight thing. Not only did it, so not only did it, like, fill the the boat but then it started seeping out onto the ground right in, into the 7-eleven parking lot and was filling the parking lot with it before he realized realized it was only 60 dollars worth of gas though yeah 30 gallons of that's a lot of gas yeah okay so that, i thought that was interesting this definitely what's up with that um there was a uh, there was a lady who was driving on the freeway and she you know uh, these HIV lanes that uh, they now have. HOV you, lanes? Well, HOV, uh, yeah, HOV lanes uh, <laughs> that they that they have um, nowadays. They have they use them extensively in California. Yeah, they do. And we have a couple of them up here. But uh, this woman got piled, pulled over by a cop. She was a 62-year-old lady, and she was driving with a, a skeleton. A skeleton? Yeah, she had taken a hat and her shawl and wrapped it around like the skeleton was. I know person. people. I mean, I know that people oh, do that with mannequins. Yeah, mannequins, blow up dummies. I mean, yeah, all all kinds of different things. But uh, she got caught uh, using um, the skeleton uh, in order to, you know, get away with not with driving in the faster lane. I mean, that don't. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, does the rule say that it has to be a living person? Yes. Does it say living person? <laughs> well, that would be so, that. That's something for the lawyers to contend with, isn't it? Yeah. I guess if it was a, if it was a real skeleton, from an actual has been body. 
Yeah, yeah. Then you might be able to argue your point, Josh. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, that means there might be grave robbing issues involved. Right. Well, and the fact that it's dressed up, yeah, you know, the, seems with... to indicate that you realize that it's not. I don't. Maybe you're. Oh, just, she knew. I don't. I don't know. It's weird. She knew. That's a weird one. Yeah. Don't don't do that stuff. That's that's. But I've heard place. of mannequins. I've heard of mannequins being used. You know, the weird one is that those lanes, I can never tell when I go to California, I can never tell if those lanes are toll lanes or not. Because it's like, there's certain areas where they're tolled and certain yes. areas where they're not. Don't we only have one lane in, in the Portland area? Uh, the Going uh, I five towards Vancouver, yeah. I-5 towards Vancouver. Yeah, there's uh, we only one. Yeah, yeah. We, don't, we don't have them here. We don't use them extensively here. Yeah. The other place where they're used extensively is in uh, Florida. Yeah. All the roads in Florida are almost all toll roads. Yeah. Um and I'm I'm with you because we don't use enough of them. Well, they're, no, they're I kind of confusing. I meant carpool lanes. Yeah. Do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, the carpool lanes even in California, you kind of ask yourself the question, you know, am I am I in the right lane? Am I allowed to do this? Yeah. Yeah. What else you got? Okay, last one here. Um well, you know, the weather has been kind of weird lately. So much so that in Florida, in Miami, Florida, mm -hmm. the weather service put out a uh, an alert for people to watch out for uh, falling iguanas. Okay, because the the uh, the weather had dropped down to uh, between thirties uh, and forties, and iguanas are warm blooded. Yeah, and so they would climb up in the palm trees yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, the weather would uh, would turn cold. They would uh, become unconscious and drop out of the palm trees and be hitting people. Wow! So you know, watch out for falling iguanas if you're in Florida. That's a weird one, <laughs> huh? Yeah. yeah. What would you place that under? Well, like, is that a weather alert, or should that be like what? I well, guess it making it a weather alert makes sense. It was the National Weather Service who put it out. Yeah, but uh, that's definitely what's up with that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, let's go into uh, and talk a little bit about um, marriage. In uh, okay. <laughs> well, in, that's not a what's up with that. That's in no. our next uh, in our next section. What's that segment called again? <laughs> I'm having a mind blank. You have the buttons there. Well, it's it's something it's like culture insanity, but it's not. Yeah. Remember? Oh, 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 oh! Right, right, right. Um, I don't know. It'll come to me while we're talking. Cultural lunacy. All right. There, there you go. go. There, there, you, there, it came the, back to you. The theme brought it back to me. Cultural lunacy. I can only do so much here. Well, you know, I mean, definitely struggling with the age thing where it takes me a couple minutes sometimes. To, I know I can, I, I'm thinking it. I know I know I know it, but it's not quite there yet. Right. You know, I, I'm, the, it's annoying. Um, okay. So, hey, we've been talking about marriage. And we've been talking about what Scripture has to say about um, the institution of marriage and understanding the dynamics that take place between men and women. And this was one of the subjects that people were interested in talking about because it is such a basic uh, institution 
sure. uh, given to us by God. So what we talked about last time, we just began to talk about it, was uh, creation and the creation story where God created uh, man and then he created uh, woman and he took woman uh, from the uh, rib of man and he fashioned a helpmate. Right, we were talking about that when we were talking about Genesis. Yeah. Right, and the, pur- the purpose behind the, the, the woman's... Re- so what, what we're going to talk about briefly is about the issue of roles. Mm. And that we're not, we're not arguing from a biblical standpoint that, that men are better than women are, or women are lesser somehow. What we're talking about is within God's design, God designs design things a specific way. First of all, he designed men uh, in such a way that, uh, that um, you definitely know that it's a man. So the bone structure for a man is different. Sure. We talked a little bit about that. That's one of the issues they're having to deal with right now with uh, people who are transgendered and, and men who have transgendered to, to uh, say that they're women and want to compete in, against other women. It's, it's a big issue in our culture. Um, what we know from Scripture is that God specifically designed men physiologically. Men are stronger, more, uh, they're, they're capable of doing uh, more difficult physical tasks because of their physical... Well, they, may not, they not, may not necessarily be stronger, but they are proportionately more muscle mass, for sure. Yeah, definitely the muscle mass More is bone mass, lower percentage of body fat, right. all that. The brains other, work differently. Right, right, right. The brains work differently uh, physi- physiologically. Um, and now <laughs> we're going to go back to the sex thing for a second. Physiologically, men, um, their sexual organs are um, are aggressive. Mm-hmm. Aggressive from the standpoint that, well, okay, so, so... So So you're saying that penises are angry. Not angry, aggressive. Aggressive. <laughs> A difference between angry and aggressive. Uh, so much so... Right. Um, uh, I was hoping to get that sound bite from you, but... Yeah, yeah, no. I'd, I'll... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you've heard my Renaissance story, Josh. I'll tell you my Renaissance story. So, so... Um, <laughs> okay. In in the Renaissance, you know the um, much of the reaction uh, for art in the Renaissance was in response to uh, trying to downplay some of the excesses of the Roman Empire. And if you go to like uh, if you go to Pompeii and have an opportunity to see the ruins there um, from Vesuvius blowing up, when you go into Pompeii. Um, in, in Pompeii, the Romans basically worshipped the phallus. And you'll see um, artwork of huge penises all over the place because that's where the Romans were coming from. Now, when we get to, we go through the Dark Ages, we, you know, the downfall of Rome, the Dark Ages, now into the Renaissance. When we get into the Renaissance, the artwork that is being depicted tries to downplay the aggressiveness in the male penis. For example, when we went to look at the statue uh, of David, Michelangelo's statue of David, sure. the, the, uh, the tour guide is you know, into the glory and of the statue of David and in particularly the, 
the majesty of uh, and the mastery of uh, Michelangelo at at uh, at depicting David. Sure. So the muscle structure, the you know, you could see the muscle structure and and and, and the form and the way. Yeah, it's done. impressive. It, it, yeah, it's impressive. So after she got done, do, or yeah, she got done doing all of her thing. Um, I took her aside and say, so could you answer me a question? She said, what? I said, well, okay, you're telling me about the wonders of Michelangelo in, the, in this statue, and I'm not disagreeing with that, but I'm going to ask you a question. Why is David not circumcised? I mean, I can answer that for you. She said, are you Jewish? I said, no, I'm not Jewish. I'm actually a pastor. But, but my question has to do with the fact that you're telling me that Michelangelo played great detail to making his depiction of David. And I guarantee you, David would have been circumcised. Yeah, absolutely. And yet here is this depiction with uh, him not being circumcised, him being uncircumcised. Why is there a difference here? Well, she had no answer for me. But between you and I, it goes back to my issue with I know what the answer is. Because the, in the Renaissance, they didn't want the, the depiction of the penis uh, from the male structure to be seen as aggressive. And an uncircumcised penis looks more aggressive than a non-circumcised penis. I mean, there may be something to that, but that's not why. The, re the reason why David was depicted well, yeah, as... Now, you can give me the art historian deal. Well, I'm, your, I'm telling you exactly what that, it is. Well, that's it's your wheelhouse. Yeah, that's your wheelhouse. Yeah, so the reason why Michelangelo depicted David that way is because during the Renaissance period, specifically Greco-Roman art was, uh, you know, at... Um, Greco-Roman ideology was what they considered to be um, perfect, essentially. Yeah. And so they tried to make everything Greco-Roman. That's why you have everybody being white, for instance, and not you know olive skinned or tan skinned. I know that just fries my bake. So so that's the first thing is you know they they all look Greco-Roman, very distinctly Greco-Roman. And what you have to understand about um, that particular art form is that the height of the human in in the renaissance period is uh a young male boy essentially so he would not be circumcised because he's greco-roman he's not supposed to look like jews and you know we can get on the internet and like look at these things we can look at cultures like we we have a very connected world they really didn't um so the when they're telling stories like they imagine they imagine them as themselves right and so they're romanticizing the they're romanticizing their heritage, their Italian heritage going back to the Romans, and that was what they did. And so as they're making these as they're making these pieces of art, they're making them look like their understanding of that time period. And so basically he wouldn't be circumcised because he was not Jewish, he was Roman. But then on top of it, they their understanding is that it is uh um, the human form is best exemplified in, in a little boy. And that's... Which is why I hold that Kristen Stewart... <laughs> that, Kristen, <laughs> that Kristen Stewart would be considered beautiful back then, whereas somebody more voluptuous now, you know, would not be. 
And I and I'm respectful of your art history background and and what you've just described. And that that doesn't, however, discount uh, what I possibly that he should be circumcised. No, well, he, not if again, if you're going for authenticity, then yes, he should be circumcised. Yeah, of course. Um, and it doesn't discount my my sure theory that that that's part of that they didn't want it to be aggressive. Right, 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 right. Whereas when we look at the the female form, yeah, the female form um, is uh, not as uh, doesn't put on muscle mass the same way that the male does. Yeah, it's is not able to handle the uh, the muscle structure is different. Males and females are what we call dimorphic. Okay, and that, that's it. Just means it's just a term to describe in physiology that they're different. Well, one of the fascinating Some things, species are very different, like peacocks. Right, right, right. And I don't know if you guys know this, but a peahen is what it says, is peacock and peahen. But, I mean, some species are very different. Yeah. Human beings are fairly similar to each other. But, yeah, but we I, are dimorphic, and there's a lot of ways in which we are. And when, when you talk about um, uh, recent articles I've read within the last five years or so talking about... Uh, um, physiologists that specialize in athletic physiologists that deal with you know how to improve athletes and and uh, the physiologies are really um writing remarkably that the the uh, differences with for example for runners and what uh, how a woman is affected when she runs versus how a man is affected when he runs uh there are major issues that have to be considered uh, for example, for and of course these these issues come up for uh, um, running shoe designers, for example, right? Who have to take into consideration the difference. So uh, there's differences in that manner, and obviously there's a difference in the uh, sexual organs as well. Yeah. Um, and in particular, that the the woman physiologically is uh, is to receive. So the male is aggressive, the woman is to receive. Now, now why do you say, oh, come on, Pastor, duh. Um, but, but you'd be surprised that, that many people don't understand that dynamic statement that I just made because if we go back to understand that God created, this was not by happenstance, this is not all of those uh, Darwinian or chaos theory or other people who think that we just kind of uh, came into being and ended up being male and female. God says we were created male, created female, and not only that, but in the creation, he designates specific roles to each, the male and the female. Yep. Complementary. Uh, the the roles complementary to how it is that we are designed. So, for example, um, men are uh, men uh, use one side of their brain predominantly, and and we're one track thinkers. You can train yourself not to be. For example, guys, I'm not. Uh, it's not. It's not a, a bad thing, but it's more difficult. For men to be thinking of multiple things at once and be focused on those, um, you can train yourself to do so. However, for example, when I was a uh, 
when I was working in the restaurant industry as a, as a dinner cook, I would have uh, 10 orders up all at once, all different, all diverse, in various, in various stages of being done. And so I trained myself to be able to think of multiple things going on all at once to be able to be successful at that. But generally speaking, men are one track in how they think. Women, on the other hand, God designed them to use both hemispheres of their brain at once. Yep. Yeah, it's. I just posted uh, a article from Stanford Medical, basically talking about that. But yeah, it's a well established fact that there's yeah. differences physiologically and how that plays out and in how we think. Yes. And so for and and the re and the reason for that is because um, women were created by God to be a helpmeet to their to their spouse to their partner. And so, she, you know, part of her, her design then is for her to be able to see into and give insight into those areas where the man may not may have difficulty in, in being insightful. Sure. And so God's... We're meant to complement each other. Yeah, yes. we are meant to complement each other. Exactly. And that's part of God's design. So he created them male, he created them female, and he created them so that they complement each other in how it is that they function. And I dare say that one of the reasons why we have difficulty inside of many marriages today is because of a broad misunderstanding of, of uh, this very thing, that uh, men and women, and, and you know, the popular psychology... Uh, you know, recognizes that it's an issue. For example, if you've ever read, like, you know, uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Sure. You know, where they talk about the differences between men and women and what have you. Um, it's recognized that those things are there, but it's not recognized, I believe, the significance of how that plays back to the fact that God designed us that way and that it was designed to be uh, in that fashion a complement to how it is that we live in our relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, the complementary factor is kind of well-known across the board, even when you get outside of... Um, even when you get outside of the physiological and biological aspects, um, even just the effect of having a... Uh, heterosexual two-parent family. Right. Um, there's a huge difference. Um, there's a huge difference on things like poverty and education. Um, yeah. So. Okay. So so then part of that. So part of what we so foundationally what we're talking about is setting up an understanding that we were created by God, male and female. This is the scriptural position. We are created by God, male and female, each of us given unique abilities to how God created us so that we might complement that individual that we are going to spend uh, our life with uh, to be productive um, in our relationship with God. 
And so that's God's design as how that was to be. And it's also his design then. We see this, uh, for example, uh, in Genesis. It's also his design that as the as as a man grows up, um, he's going to separate himself more and more from his parents as he establishes his own his own path. Call it weaving and cleaving. Yeah, and he's going to find a uh, a mate who he then can set up his own household with. And what Scripture says is that the the male is to leave and cleave. And the woman's position in this is that she is to cleave to her husband and that they are to form a family unit. But the, but the command from Scripture here is to the man, not to the woman. Well, I think, I think maybe, uh, hmm, maybe a more, hmm, <laughs> maybe a good way to put it would be that it's through the man. It's through the man, My, right? It's it's to the whole family. Yes. As an ex- and the man is the federal head of the family. Yes, I agree with so, that. So so it applies to the woman as well, but it's through the man. Yes, but but the. But the difference being that that the women, because they are familial and tied to that familial relationship. You mean relational? uh, Yes, they're relational. Mm -hmm. And so the family relationship is important to them. Most men that I'm aware of, there are exceptions, but most men that I'm aware of have little or no difficulty separating themselves from their parents. I don't. I mean, I don't think that's true, but well, it, but it's different. That's May, my observation. Maybe in a practical sense, but definitely not. I I don't think that's true. In fact, you have like look at the cliche of men with their mothers. Well, you don't. That that's that's a that's a misrepresentation because of sin. But I don't believe that that's God's design. Okay, what I'm saying is in the world we live and in, yes, which is a sin-filled world, yes. men and women both have the issue of well, of leaving and cleaving. Well, of course, I'll agree with your with I'll agree with you to an extent, Josh, uh, with this caveat that particularly where it regards finances, a lot of men uh, still like to run back to to mom and dad because they think their dad's a bank. <laughs> I think I think that men in particular have a hard time with their mothers. They have an easy time pushing away from their fathers, but in terms of their mothers, most men have, you know, they have this, this spot for mama. They get her tattooed on their arm or whatever, and they just really want to make sure that they want to make their mother the first woman in their life. And uh, there's a huge cliche of... Um, yeah, being a mama's boy and... Well, mama's boy and the, uh, the mother-in-law like the relationship between a wife and the mother-in-law and how that's oftentimes tumultuous because the man allows the mother-in-law essentially to serve as a second or the man allows his mother essentially to serve as a second wife. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of, so I, I mean, I think, but, but that goes back to my first point. Sure. That in this regard, that women uh, have to wrestle with, 
the emotional aspect of who God created them to be. And this whole issue of uh, family and how that all relates to who they are as individuals uh, can be difficult to separate. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't hear you saying, but I want to be clear about it. It's not to say that men don't wrestle with it too, but men wrestle with it in a different way. Yes, I would say men wrestle. There are men who wrestle with it, but to maybe a lesser degree. I don't. I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I don't think, think it's to. A, I don't think to, it's to a lesser degree. I think it's in a different way. Okay. So the burden is. So the burden is carried. The same. The same amount of burden is carried because we're made as inner. We're made as inner and outer beings, right? Men have hearts. Men have souls. Men, you know, we men have minds, and we carry the same weight as the women do. It's just we carry it differently. So it may be – think about um, – have you ever experienced the cliche of a man and woman carrying in bags of groceries? So like you've got the same amount of groceries, right? A woman will oftentimes make multiple trips, right? Right. But a man, he will take every bag he can in every single one of his, you know, he'll right. like string it around his different fingers. He'll carry as much as he can at yeah. one time, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean by that. The weight is the same, but men and women carry it differently. And because of that, different problems and different applications and different blessings arise from it. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, it's men and women were both made in the image of God. And so it's not, so men are emotional just as much as women. And I carry that through all the way into, you know, I've gotten into arguments with, with people about parenting too. Like people say that man can't, you know, doesn't understand the parenting experience because the woman is the one who carried the child. And it's like, that's not true. Yeah, that's not true. Everybody in that particular decision-making unit in that, in that unit, uh, the third person unit that's formed in a relationship is carrying an equal amount of weight, but the way they carry it is different. Right. So uh, our point here in this discussion is to is to understand that um, that God created men very specifically with uh, uh, with specifically physically, specifically emotionally, um, and spiritually as well. God created women in the same way. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, um, in order to complement man, and that uh, the two, according to God's design, are to separate and to from their parents who brought them up, and to uh, uh, form a new uh, household unit. That is God's design, right? And and so then, uh, when we talk about this next week, we'll extrapolate then how that design begins to work itself out uh, in a practical way. Uh, we are uh, out of time, and uh, so we want to close um, the uh, truth time uh, with that. Okay. Uh, yeah. If you are someone who's seeking answers or you want to know more about your faith or if you're new to Jesus Christ or the Bible, we want to help you. So check out our help tab at abfpdx.org. And remember that we're always open to questions Pastor Monty's ready and waiting to deliver sage advice and insight, so don't be shy. And um, let's close it out. This show is a truth time. 
Wow. This show, Truth Time with Pastor Monty, is a resource of Aletheia Bible Fellowship of Portland, Oregon, and it's a webcast on the Vigilance Radio Network, a resource developed by Project Vigilance ABS web portal that provides helpful and interesting online resources for the church local and at large. If you want to be a part of the VRN and what we're doing here, join us at the Vigilance Radio Network's Facebook page and get access to all of our shows, including Culture Insanity. There's a good one that just aired uh, last Saturday. Um... And other other things, we've got cross-examination. You can like look at all the shows from back then, um, all of our weekly sermons. You can comment and question in real time. Um, if you've enjoyed Truth Time, consider supporting us, please. Our networking shows are free to you, but they're not free to us. So head over to abfpdx.org and click the Donate tab. Even a dollar a month would be put to good use for the gospel. And if you're poor like us, that's cool. You can still partner with us by remembering to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. And you can always find it on the ABF's YouTube page, Instagram, Facebook, the VRN Facebook group, all that good stuff. So take a second to visit the group pages so you can stay up to date whenever we share new content each week. And remember that the content is shared on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. And we will see you then. I am Pastor Josh, your engineer and senior pastor over at ABF. And this has been Pastor Monty. The views presented in this program are not meant to express the specific views of the Lafayette Bible Fellowship. You are listening to the Vigilance Radio Network.